If you're newer to Covenant, you may not uh, know that we are on a journey as a congregation. It's a journey that we have been on for almost six months now. It's a journey through one of the four Gospels in the Bible because we want to know more about Jesus and draw closer to Jesus and follow him in our lives. It's a journey that we've taken through the Gospel of Luke. It started at the beginning of Advent, at the end of November. We started with chapter 1, verse 1, moved our way through the Gospel, and we've come today to chapter 24, verse 1. And on this Easter, I invite you to listen to God's word to us today, starting in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified, and on the third day rise again? Then they remembered his words, Jesus' words. In returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home, amazed at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or how we walk in here, what doubts, what questions, what opinions, that we would be open to what you, the living God, might say to us this day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Why are you here today? That's a real question. Why are you here today? Uh, for some of you, it, 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 it may be because you believe this stuff, because we live in a world that often feels like it's on fire, because we struggle in our own lives, our own selfishness, our own self-centeredness, and to hear the declaration of good news, to hear of God's love, is something personal to us and real to us, that we are hungry for this news, hungry for a hope that doesn't fade. But let's be honest, that's probably not every one of us that's here. There's some of us who are here today, maybe because it's tradition, because it's Easter, and it kind of feels like the right thing to do, it kind of feels like you're supposed to wake up and go to church and, you know, pastels have something to do with Jesus. And so we wear those and, uh, and, and we go to church and maybe we've got like lunch reservations after this. And, uh, and it's just like the thing that's supposed to happen on Easter. And we got like a, a nice little Sunday afternoon that we still get to enjoy, right? Some of you are probably here to keep the peace. Yes, we know you're here for that reason to keep a spouse happy, to keep a parent-in-law happy. It's like, this is just what we got to do. We're checking the box. I'm doing the thing. Usually Sundays, I can kind of find a way out of this, but it's Easter. I get it. I got an hour, except for parking. We got to figure out the parking. But once we figure out the parking and get in here, it's an hour. I can move on with my life. It's just easier to keep the peace and move on with our day. Some of you may not know why you're here, but there are questions 
and there's searching that's going on. If you are here and are not certain that there's really anything transcendent or miraculous, if you're not here because you feel personally confident and excited that the tomb is empty, I want you to know you're in really good company. The women in this story did not believe anything supernatural or miraculous was going to happen. They didn't show up there expecting the tomb to be empty. They didn't expect the stone to be rolled away. And even when they show up and the uh, uh, stone is rolled away, their natural instinct is not to go, Jesus is alive. They go in and are wondering what's going on until these divine beings, these two angels, look at them and say, why do you look for the living among the dead? As he told you, he would suffer, but he has risen He is alive. These women were going to fulfill cultural tradition and religious tradition. They hadn't had time to prepare the body for burial before the Sabbath, and they couldn't do that on the Sabbath. So now at early dawn, they're going because sometimes when your world feels like it's crashing in, it's easy to stay busy with something rather than just sit in it and wonder. But they were not looking for anything miraculous. And yet, they are the ones who preached the first Christian sermon in history. They go back and these women tell the other disciples that Jesus is alive, that the tomb is empty. They go back to deliver this good news to the disciples and that good news cascades down to you and I through the millennia, through history. This took place in a different continent, a different culture, a different language thousands of years ago, but it is as real today and direct today as it was 2,000 years ago. Jesus is alive. Now, When you hear that, you might also go, I don't know about that. We can sometimes get on our intellectual high horse believing we know more. They just didn't understand. These people dealt with death a whole lot more than you and I do on a daily basis. That's why they weren't looking for a live body. They knew what happened when you died, especially at the hands of the Romans. And for that reason, when the women come back and declare this first sermon, this first Easter message that Jesus is risen, the disciples go, I don't know. I don't think that's right. They're hiding in an upper room, scared for their own life because they've seen their teacher, their rabbi, crucified in front of them. And as they're there and hear these tales, they do not believe. In fact, what it says is they believe that it is an idle tale. And it's Luke writes specifically, they did not believe. Except for Peter, who didn't necessarily believe, but in this wonderfully Peter way, when you read the Gospels, just kind of goes charging out of this room and runs to the tomb to see what's going on, just to investigate and to see what's happening. And it says that he sees the empty tomb and the linen cloth there, and he comes home amazed. And so no matter who you are or the good company you keep with these women or with these disciples, I'd like you today to just for a few minutes take the posture of Peter. I'm not asking you to check your intellect at the door. I am asking you just to be open and investigate for a moment. I know for me, I had to really struggle with this when the idea of Jesus being real and being alive first started occurring to me at age 24. As most of you know, I didn't grow up in any of this. Um, When I I felt a calling uh, to ministry, uh, my parents were like, what? And then they kind of have through the years, it's like, so when do you get a real job? Like, when do you, like, go actually do something with your, with your life? Um, and, and, um, and my fraternity brothers are still like, seriously, 
what do you do? I'm like, no, I, no, I really, seriously. They're like, no, no, seriously, what do you do? I didn't grow up thinking this is what I was going to do. I didn't grow up believing any of this was any more real than Zeus hurling lightning bolts down from Mount Olympus at people he was angry at. But as this idea started becoming real to me, I needed to actually investigate it myself. Do I have to check my intellect at the door? Not that I have much of one, but whatever intellect I have, do I have to suspend that and get caught up in this emotional thing? Or can this actually be real? Because here's the thing, and C.S. Lewis writes about this, no matter who you are or how you walk in, there's two options on how you deal with Jesus. C.S. Lewis says that you can either believe that he is who he says he is, the Messiah, the Son of God, or he's totally deranged. This whole thing that we do is like, well, I don't believe in Jesus, but I think he's a really good moral teacher. It's not an option. It's not an option Jesus gives you. Because none of his teachings really make sense if all he is is just trying to give us some morality, some religion, some rules to follow, some ideas, how to live a nice, comfortable life. Lewis says that he is who he says he is, or he's deranged. So can you, can I, believe in this day? Well, as I investigated it, when I started looking, there were some things that were really important to me that I encountered. First off, what we see, and we see this specifically in the gospel we've been in for six months, the gospel of Luke, we see that this gospel was written to be questioned. Luke is the closest we have to what a modern historian would think of how you record history. He's a physician, he's educated, and he writes this, he says, at the beginning of the gospel to lay out a factual account. This is the least dramatic, in some ways, Easter story. Luke's just writing the facts of what happened, but the facts tell us that Luke thought, you're not gonna believe this either. So let me write it to you in a way that you are going to go investigate it and see what happened. We know that Luke wrote this probably a generation after these events took place. The people that he's writing about here very well still could have been alive. And if they weren't alive, their children were, were most likely alive and would have known these tales. And so Luke writes with an idea of going, I want you to investigate this. I want you to check it out. He doesn't say that Jesus was just born in some land someday. He wasn't born in a galaxy far, far away. It says he was born in Bethlehem at this specific time, when Caesar Augustus was in charge of the Roman Empire, when there was a census that took place, which we know in history when that happened because Roman records show us. It was then that Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem. It was there that he was born in alignment with the prophecies. We know as he goes older how his ministry develops. And we know that in these last, this last week in Holy Week that Luke writes this in a way of going, check out the people that were there. It wasn't just that some uh, Pharisees and Sadducees and the high priests didn't like Jesus. He says this was a time when in the Jewish council there was a person in charge named Caiaphas. You can go back and see when Caiaphas was the high priest. You can go back and see that these people were all in charge at a certain time. Luke's the one that writes to us about when they took Jesus' body down from the cross at the end of Luke 23. He says that he was buried in a tomb, but it wasn't just someone's tomb somewhere. Luke says that the person who owned this tomb, this family tomb, was an individual named Joseph. And it wasn't just any Joseph, but it was a Joseph from a town of Arimathea. We, they knew where Arimathea was. It was a small village near Jerusalem. And it wasn't just anybody that lived in Arimathea named Joseph. It was the representative from Arimathea who served on the high council of the Jews. Now, if this, these facts aren't real, they are easy to proof text at the time and go, this story makes no sense. And because Luke writes it with specificity, Luke's really inviting the people at the time going, go talk to them. 
right? That's why he writes it this way. Go talk to Joseph. Hey, Joseph, did you ever lend your family tomb to someone that came back from the dead? If Joseph doesn't remember that, there's a pretty good chance it didn't happen, right? If Joseph's children don't remember it, there's a pretty good chance it didn't happen. Luke is writing this going, I want you to question and go see and figure it out. This is an easy, easy fable to prove if it's not true. Luke writes it in a way expecting people like you and I to not check our intellect at the door, but to go see and investigate, and nobody ever came forward saying they had found the body or it wasn't real. Secondly, we see that, for example, if you're going to make this story up to try to convince people, it's not written in a very convincing fashion. For example, the people who preach the first Christian sermon, the ones that go and say he's risen, are women. Now, I want to be clear about this. I am not saying what I'm about to say in terms of my own opinion. But at the time, women were not allowed to seen as ones who could give reliable testimony. In Roman courts, they were not allowed to testify. Again, not my opinion. 2,000 years ago, I have to go to lunch with my wife and daughters after this, uh, and so I want to be very clear on that fact, okay? But if you were making this up for a reason and trying to convince people about it, having women as the original ones who are going, we have seen this, is not the way you'd write it at the time. On top of that, Luke once again writes with specificity. He doesn't just say there were some women who went to the tomb. He says it's Mary Magdalene. It's Mary, the mother of James. Here are the people that were there. You can go ask them. If, you've, if, if Mary, the mother of James, is no longer living, go check out with James and ask him if he hasn't. Did mom ever tell him a tale? Because if not, probably didn't happen. Or take, for example, the uniqueness of what this story, this Easter story, has given birth to in terms of Christianity and the Jesus movement. There's nothing else like it in all of history. Now, there will be, because we live in a day and age where there are pundits who talk about anything and everything. 24-hour cable TV means that, and the internet means that there's always some expert giving their opinion on something. And probably today, when the Easter story is talked about, you may see some expert on TV or, or, or online who's going to say things like, well, we as people who have studied the biblical times, and we're like scholars in this, and we have multiple PhDs in this stuff, no one with an intellect like ours would believe that this is true, because we know of historians like Josephus, and we can say big words like that, and uh, erudite, and we know what it means, and we can uh, like say, I don't, I'm not a scholar. This is how I imagine they talk. Okay, <laughs> like this is this is my opinion of how they would talk on this stuff. And they were like, well, we know through historians that Jesus wasn't unique. We know that there were a lot of people in, in, in that time in, in Israel running around saying that they were the Messiah. We know that they had followers. We know that there were reports of miracles. We know that there were reports of healing. We know that there's nothing uh, uh, different necessarily about Jesus in that. And, you're, and I watch that, and, and it's like they're trying to prove that it's not real. It's, it's, we just, that's how they understood things at the time. And it's like, no. Do you know who any of those other people are, those other messiahs? No. Neither do I. Because they died. And when they died, they stayed dead. And when they stayed dead, their followers went home. That's what you do. Disappointed, heartbroken, like the women and the men in this story. But you go home and restart your life. No, we know that nothing like this happens. We know that these men and women saw something 
Something happened and they began spreading out around Israel and then all around the Roman Empire, all giving this message that Jesus had come back to life. And what did it gain them in a worldly sense? Nothing except pain. They did not get paid for it. They didn't get rich over it. They were ostracized from family and friends. They were, many of them died uh, horrible deaths proclaiming this truth. And yet in that time, as they were spread out over different years, isolated from each other, not one of them took it back. People don't do that to just do it. That's why there's no other story like this. If for some reason Peter was making this up and it was a big joke among the disciples, we know in history that Peter was crucified upside down. When they are going to drive nails in you and crucify you upside down for saying this, if you're lying, you tell them you're lying. Not one of them took it back. Not one of them recanted what they had seen. It doesn't happen anywhere else. The sitting there saying there were other Messiah figures at the time does not disprove anything. It proves the uniqueness of this story. I want to submit to you today, no matter who you are, how you walk in here, that this is not an idle tale. And if it's not, if it happened, the tomb is empty. If Easter actually happened, then nothing in this world and nothing in your life will ever be the same again. Because what we believe, the foundation, the very core of our faith is not about more religion and more rules and, and, and being a, a better person and a more moral person. That the very core of our faith is not if you're good, good things will happen to you. Our faith is built on the idea that this is the real world. And in the real world, there are hard things that happen to good people and there are good things that happen to bad people and everything on the spectrum in between because we live in a fallen, broken world. But what our faith teaches us is not that if we're really, 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 really good, we'll be spared from hardship. What our faith teaches us is that hardship will not be the end of our story. That death, as we see here, is overturned. That sin is overcome as we've been singing about. What our faith teaches us is that no matter who you are or how you walk in here today, the most painful, difficult, worrying things in life will not be the final things in your life. And that is what Easter is all about. A hope that is alive, that will never die no matter what we see or experience in this world, and that new life will arise. Now that, friends, is an enormously bold claim. That is a hugely bold claim. And so I wanted to think today and kind of go, so what does that actually look like in practice? What does it mean, Easter hope? We saw it, for instance, in the video that we showed. But what does Easter hope mean like in the world that you and I face today? And I don't want a small example of this because, you know, we don't want to just kind of write it off. as like it's just kind of this nice, warm, little, cozy thought. What does it mean to say that the, the worst things we experience won't be the final things? And recently I came across a story. It was a story about someone who you may have heard of before. Um, the may, name may be familiar to you. His name is Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson was a pastor. 
and an author of several different books. If you've ever read The Message, the translation of the Bible, The Message from the Old Testament and the New Testament, Eugene Peterson spent years translating the Bible into what he hoped was a more accessible uh, um, uh, English language. Uh, Eugene Peterson wrote many books. Uh, all of our pastors here at Times have quoted uh, from Eugene Peterson. He's wonderful because he, he challenges pastors to remember that this is a spiritual thing we're doing. We're not ultimately running an institution, which is always hard to, to remember, and he keeps us on point in that. Uh, our church had a video a couple of years ago that came out where Eugene Peterson was recorded and filmed in a conversation with Bono from U2. Bono uh, talks very openly and has written about Eugene Peterson and Eugene Peterson's faith and its influence on Bono and his walk with Jesus. Um, and we, put, we had that uh, video that we shared with this community. Eugene Peterson was in his 80s. And last year, found out that he was declining in health and there was nothing that doctors could do about that health. Eugene Peterson spent time, as people do, near the end, saying goodbye to family, to friends, uh, to kind of getting his, his affairs in order. And one day last fall, Eugene Peterson had something that happened and he took a very dramatic downturn in his health. Many of you have been in a situation like this, but the family gathered from all over and Eugene Peterson had lost consciousness, and the hospice nurses said that he would not gain, regain consciousness. And that is a hard time for a family. As I said, many of you have been there. You gather around someone's bed, and on one hand, you're waiting. And time, on the one hand, passes very quickly, and yet on the other hand, it seems to just creep along. And we are dealt the hand that we see that's true all the time, which is that we don't have nearly as much control over life as we think we do on an everyday basis. And his family gathered, and as they were holding vigil, they made sure that someone was with him night and day to be with him, to pray with him, to just sit quietly, to read scriptures. And one night, on what turned out to be the final day and night of Eugene Peterson's life, as he lay there unconscious, his daughter-in-law was with him. And all of a sudden, as she was there, Eugene Peterson sat straight up in bed, Eyes open, looking at the wall, the far end of the bedroom. His daughter-in-law said to him, Dad, are you okay? Like, are you, do you need something? And he didn't respond. He just kept staring. She looked to try to see what he was staring at, but it was just the wall that was there. And all of a sudden, as he sat looking, sitting up in bed with his eyes open, he said, Hi, my name's Eugene. I've been waiting to see you my whole life. I am so glad that you are here. Please, please, wherever you're going, please let me come with you. And he laid back down and closed his eyes and smiled and said two times, thank you, thank you. The last words he ever spoke. And that's not a tale about Eugene Peterson. That's a tale of the one who he saw, of the one who he encountered, of the one whom the grave could not hold. This is not an idle tale. And if it means that in that extreme of a circumstance like it did for Eugene Peterson and for so many others, imagine what that hope looks like in your world today 
with the worries and the stresses and the strains that are very real that we have at work, that we have in our marriages, that we have in our families, that we have in this community, that we have in this world that is broken and divided. Imagine what it means for us to declare that that hope is real and alive and that no matter what we walk through as people, that the most difficult things shall not be the final things. That is Easter. That is hope. That is love poured out, and it is a love that is there for you and I today. Hallelujah. And amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask this day, that this hope would be our hope, that we would not dismiss this as an idle tale. Luke writes this to say, I want you to investigate and see and to know that this is real and it changes everything. May the hope of the resurrection wash over us all today. May it be personal to us. May it be corporate for us. And may we go from this place with heads held high in hope, because no matter what we walk back into, the most difficult, hardest, most worrying things in our life and in our world shall not be the final things. May that hope fill us to overflowing on this glorious day. We pray all of this in the name of the one who makes it all possible, Jesus. We pray, amen.